listening to 90% Mental, Conversations with Grant Parr, episode 173. Today, mental performance coach Grant Parr sits down with the author of Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiosity Elastic Limits of Human Performance, Alex Hutchinson, to talk about his mental training out of sports and past experiences. A former national team distance runner, Alex shares his story of how he managed to bounce back from his obstacles to win his gold medal in the race, how he coped with failures, and how his mindset has shifted ever since. If you want to see how this pro athlete utilized mental training as a key part of his mindset transitioning, this is a must-listen episode for you. Are you ready to raise your game? 2021 is the year to increase your performance on and off the field. The Athlete's Edge Journal was designed to cultivate self-confidence and mental resilience through the power of sports psychology. Whether you are a professional athlete, a former college athlete, or have aspirations of greatness in the future, this journal is for you. Visit winthementalgame.com and use the promo code GRANTPAR20 to receive a 20% discount at checkout. Act now to take your mental game to the next level. What if you could rapidly accelerate your team's performance and skill acquisition just minutes before practice or game? NeuroTrainer triggers high-performance states with virtual reality brain training that can be deployed in the gym or at home. In just eight minutes, your team will be more focused and ready for whatever you or the game throws at them. Visit NeuroTrainer.com to schedule your demo and get your team locked in. Hey Alex, how are you? Hey Grant, uh, not not too not too bad. Yourself? Doing great. You know, um, I always say this because uh, I love my doing my show, but I'm I'm really excited. Um, and I had I think I've been thinking about the last two years or so when I came across your book and saw your work. I'm like, I gotta gotta have this guy on my show. And it's been so long that I've been thinking about that, and I finally have you on my show. So I'm really excited to, to have you not only share about your mindset and the research that you have been doing on high performers, um, but also just talk about your journey as a runner uh, and your book Endure, which is incredible. So I'm just really excited excited to talk about your mindset and how you view mindset and how to create mindset. Awesome. Well, I'm looking. I'm looking forward to the conversation. And uh, yeah, definitely there'll be more more lessons to take from the research than from my own running career. But uh, <laughs> well, you, you learn a lot no matter what. But uh, exactly. yeah, watching exactly. the Tokyo Olympics these days, it's a reminder of uh, yeah. You know, I thought I was pretty good, and then you look, you you, you watch what's going, you watch the the very top performers, and you realize there's always another level. A hundred percent. I was watching last night track and field. And, you know, what was the, the 400 meter, I think they call in, in hurdles and you see them just come out of the gate. And I'm like, don't go, don't go too fast. Cause you got that straightaway. And they just, and they just pick up that speed on the straightaway. I'm like, how do they do it at the very end? You know, that was maybe one of the greatest races in track and field history. They, 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 Warholm smashed the world record by almost a second. Anyway, we won't get it. We won't make this a track podcast, but, no. but uh, yeah, you, you learn a lot just from seeing it. The, seeing the look in their eyes, you know, as before the gun fires. Well, I'd like to, I'd like to come back to that because, um, there was a lot that I saw in that race that we could talk about, um, just the energy, the mindset, and also the form of it. And there's a lot of things that I was actually talking about that with my wife last night, like watching them 
digging. It just, there was a different feel and look in that race than the other races that we saw, but we can, we can come back to that um, later in the podcast, but I love talking about mental toughness. And I always start off my show uh, talking about uh, mental toughness. So not only have you written about it and you've gone through it, um, when you think about being mentally tough, like what does that mean to you? Yeah. I mean, it's a big, <laughs> a big question because it's, it's at the core of what a lot of what I think about in terms of, you know, endurance and it depends on the context and on the person, but fundamentally, I think mental toughness is, is comes down to persisting or sticking to your plan or, or, or continuing on even when it's unpleasant or when it's no longer fun. I mean, in a lot, in a lot of the contexts that I think about things like sports, we, we start doing sports because it's fun, right? Like it's, it, it's their games. It's fun to, to win a race. It's fun to, to play a game. And, and, but at some point, at some point, if you want to achieve at a high level, you have to push beyond like doing it because it's fun and you have to be willing to do things when they become sometimes seriously unpleasant. And so I think mental toughness is the, where you make that transition from doing it because you want to, to doing it because you've made a decision that this is important to do and it doesn't matter what's happening or how it's feeling or what's going against you, but you're just going to stick to that. You're going to be mentally tough and and keep doing what you want to do no matter what. For sure. And, and I want to talk about, you know, in a second here to talk about, especially with running and long distance running, the pain you have to go through um, and how, when you're going through all that pain, where do you find the joy? Where do you find the, 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 the fun of, and that does goes beyond just long distance running. There's a lot of sports out there where, um, you have to embrace the suck. You have to embrace the struggle and how do you find joy in that? So we're going to talk about that in a second. Um, but I, I want you to kind of reflect a little bit, um, out of your whole career. It could be professionally. It could be, um, when you were an athlete and still are an athlete. Um, but can you share a specific time where you had to be mentally tough, where you had to dig in your heels, um, and deal with a tough adverse moment in your life? Uh, <laughs> lots of, lots of examples spring to mind. You know, one that I, that I often think about was sort of watershed moment in my, in my track career. I was competing at Canadian university nationals one year in the uh, indoor nationals. So the, the event was the 1000 meters. I'll try to give this, not the two hour version of this story. Basically it was a very tough field and I thought I had a chance to win by, but there, there was a, basically there was an Olympic sprinter in the field and then there were some very tough distance runners. So I had to decide whether I was going to run for a medal, which would be the safe way of running for second, but understanding that the sprinter would probably out sprint me at the end or try and run the sprint out of the sprinter. And by leading the race at a very fast pace, in other words, run for gold, but put at risk my chance of getting a medal. And I opted for the, the second strategy, which is to put, put myself way out on the line and try and run for gold instead of just trying to run for, you know, a bronze medal. And so I was leading, I, I led the race until the final straightaway when this Olympic sprinter came up on my shoulder. And I don't think there's any time I've ever dug deeper than that, that moment that the, those sort of final 60 meters trying to hold off the sprinter. And that's probably the one time in my life when we talk about like mental limits and physical limits that I truly cracked with about 30 meters to go. He started to pull away and I was doing everything with, I could to stay with him so that with 10 meters to go, my body stopped working. And I basically staggered the last 10 meters and it, in the blink of an eye, as I was sort of stumbling and falling across the line, 
two shapes wished past me and I, uh, I ended up fourth by a couple hundredths of a second. And so in one sense, it was the most disappointing race of my life. That was my senior year of college. So my last chance to, to, to win a medal. Um, but it's also the one race in my life where I know I, I, I literally left nothing, absolutely nothing, uh, on, on the track. And I crossed the line. I was able to stagger around to the, to the other side of the track. And then I lay down and, and I, well, at first I was dry heaving for about 45 minutes. Uh, I couldn't get up and then I had to run again the next day. And I was up all night because I vomited so much that my, my throat and esophagus was just covered, you know, parched with bile. So I, I, I couldn't breathe or sleep. And the next day I had to run again and I had a tough race. I, I got, I ran poor tactically. I was way out of position with 500 meters to go. And I was able to dig deep and close strongly and get a bronze medal in, in the 1500 meters. So that, that's a very long story, but all of which is to say, it's not necessarily about winning or losing. When I think about when I, when I'm most proud of, you know, having dug deep or overcome adversity, it's putting myself in a position to, to really achieve my goals rather than playing it safe, pushing myself all the way to my limits, failing, and then managing to bounce back the next day and, and, and get a medal and, 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 you know, finish in, in, in with a race that I was proud of. You know, when you, when you think about kind of what your mindset was about, getting a medal or not. And then you like kind of decided to, and you wanted to get the gold medal. Was that before you raced or was that something that you were thinking in the, in the middle of your race? You know, it's something I had th been thinking about for weeks and weeks mm. before the race. Cause it, you kind of knew who the competition was going to be. And you, again, it's sort of sizing up, Oh, that guy's that went to the Olympics for the 400 meters. These guys are really good at cross country. How does that affect my race strategy? What am I going to do? Like what, what will maximize my chances in which, and so I hadn't really decided how, how I was going to run until the last, let's say the week before the race, but I had absolutely, you know, there are still decisions that get made in, in the, you know, in terms of exactly how the, the race plays out that, that play out in the heat of the moment. But one thing I, I have always found is that your brain doesn't always make the decisions you want it to make in the heat of battle. Like, you know, obviously you can, sometimes your perceptions are mag are clarified and you, you really have clarity of mind or whatever, but your brain doesn't want to hurt you. It's telling you, you're, you're finding ways of taking shortcuts or, or letting yourself, eh, maybe this isn't that important. And so I find it's really important to have something, if I really want to set an audacious goal, I have to decide beforehand, this is how I'm going to do it. And if X happens, this is how I'm going to respond. And if this goes wrong, this is how I'm going to respond so that I'm not deciding in the heat of the moment, so that it's less likely that I'll, I'll let myself off the hook. But no, I already decided if this happens, this is how I'm going to respond. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm not going to just jog it in. I'm going to keep going and I'm going to do this. Right. And so when you think about that, that experience, those two days, if you were to go back, do you talk about a lot of different strategies and things to, you know, for recovery and training the physical and the mental body, there's all these things that you talk about in your book, but back then your younger self, um, if you look back at those two days, what would you would have done differently now knowing all this, all this information and the education now that you have, like, what would you do differently? Yeah. I mean, knowing how things turned out, uh, there's obviously a huge temptation to say, well, I, you know, be more conservative, just, just run in the pack and try and run. Don't, don't try and win it like that because it's going to, it's going to be a world of hurt and disappointment. But honestly, like of, of the, you know, hundreds of races that I ran over my career, 
that that first race in particular, that's one where I have virtually no regrets. And I think, I, I don't think I would do it differently. And, you know, if you ran that race 10 times, it might, could, it, there would be different outcomes each time. And I have, uh, uh, like, I really have no regrets about having laid it out all, all on the line. And so are there things, are, are there, are there any tactics that I could have taught myself or knowledge that I could have used to make myself faster that day? I mean, you know, maybe, maybe if I'd trained harder six months earlier, uh, you know, you can always come up with things, but in that, right. in that particular case for those days, I don't think there was a mistake there. I think that's one place, even though I lost, even though I lost badly, uh, th- that if I could have, ma- if I could have raced like that 99 other times, my career would have been much better. Like that, that even though I won some races and, and lost that one, right. that's the race that I wish I could duplicate and go back in time and say, Alex, make all of your races like that one where you raced without fear. Cause I think, and I, you know, I talk about this a little bit in the book, the pattern in my career was to be raced very conservatively to, to mm. say, well, don't give it your all in case you run out of energy before the finish line. Um, and I think I lost more races by being conservative and then having a huge kick and feel finished feeling great sprinting across the line in, in sixth place right. or whatever saying, wow, look how fast I was for that last lap. <laughs> And I would have, it would have been better for me to fail more, to, to put myself in it, put myself out there and sometimes fail, but sometimes be able to hang on there. And I, I, I think that that would have been a better approach for, for me. Mm-hmm. You know, when you talk about removing the fear, it's, it allows us as athletes to, to, to feel free and whether if it is sixth place or first place, whatever, but where we can move better emotionally, mentally, we can just move within our body and make better decisions in the moment. When we don't have that weight of fear. And, and I bring this up and I know that my listeners have heard this a hundred times about my story as a quarterback, but I remember as a young athlete, I was motivated by, um, if people liked me. So the fear for me was very, very extrinsic. So I felt like it was, it was a weekly stock. So if I did really well for that week, people were going to like me. And then if I'd had a bad game, I was afraid that people might not like me anymore. And it wasn't even about if they liked me as a quarter, I liked me as a person. So that's, and that's where my fear, that was my trigger for my fear. Now I grew out of that and I matured and I had other fears I had to deal with, but what was, was there a particular fear or was there multiple types of fears that you had to deal with when you were running? Yeah. I mean, I, I think like you, um, a lot of my self-esteem was tied up in, in, in my running performance. And so I don't know if I would have articulated it quite to that degree that, that, you know, you know, I don't think people will like me if I I failed, but I, I, I wanted to, uh, to be seen as accomplished and and talented and hardworking and all these things. And so part of, and part of that was, was performing well, and particularly for me performing well when it counted most, you know, performing well in big competitions, and so I would build the bigger, the race, the more I would build it up as a, this is where I'm going to show everyone how, you know, what a, what a great competitor I am and what a tough. And so the fear obviously was then, well, if I go out and run like crap, then people are going to think, oh, that guy, you know, he's, he, he, he crumbles when it counts, you know, and it's just kind of more negative impressions of me. And so there, there's fear in, in that general sense. And then there's within the specific context of the race, there's what do I fear will happen if I go too fast? I fear, yeah. you know, I fear I, I will be 
it's like in, in a, in a distance race, in a, in a long distance running race, if, if you blow up, it, it's, it's like being caught, you know, you know, you're, you're somewhat, you're, you're swimming towards the shore and someone takes away your life jacket. It's like, all of a sudden you're stuck there. You're a long way from shore and how the heck are you going to get there? So when you've got two laps to go and no energy left, it feel like you just feel very exposed as the, as the, the, the field streams past you. So you kind of want to avoid that, that really helpless feeling of being unable to move your legs and everyone else just, you have, you have the feeling that, that everyone's looking at you and laughing and thinking like, look how slow that person is. (laughs) So in terms of like conquering the fear, I, I, you know, one of the things I remember when I was trying to move up to a longer distance, just to the five kilometer race, I would find that no matter how hard I tried, I would always slow down in the middle kilometers. And I think that's basically fear that I would run, you know, not be able to sustain my pace to the, to the finish. And so one of the tactics I tried was say, you know what, Alex, don't worry about your 5k time today. You're going to run 4k. You're going to run 4k as hard as you can. And then whatever happens in the last K happens, of course, you'll go as hard as you can. But if, if you can jog, don't worry, because you weren't running 5k today, you were just racing 4k. Um, and I think that's a really good strategy. It didn't really work for me because it, it requires a level of self-deception that, that I wasn't able to, I, I, I think if I'd worked harder at it, I think that that's, that's a strategy that would have worked, but it, maybe the, the, the moral there was, or the, the lesson there was that just kind of coming up with a nice idea is not enough. You have to really work at these mental strategies and, and ingrain them in your mind so that they, they, so that you really fully buy into them. You can't just sort of, uh, you know, read a slogan and decide that that's going to be, I'm just running 4k today. You really have to convince yourself. And I never managed to do that. Right. Yeah, we, we, it's training. This, the mental training is just like any other training. Um, and also like your thought process and very interesting how you came up with that. But then there's also that one extra K that you got to train for you know? And, you know, so I, I get that. And I, from your perspective, just from your experience as a runner, and all the research you've done. Um, and I'm going to share with you, this is actually uh, talking about a vulnerable moment, moment for me. Uh, cause I did some track and field, you know, in high school. And I remember my freshman year, uh, I remember the first time I did hurdles and back then as a freshman, you couldn't do a hundred, the hundred meter or the hundred hurdles. Cause they, cause I was a freshman. So I only did seven hurdles. So I think they call it seventies. And so I, I remember my first, my first meet, I won. Like I, I was first place. And so I felt pretty, pretty good about myself at that moment. I remember my coach goes, Hey, do you want to do the two twenties? I'm all, what's that? And it's back then it was just a shorter version of what we saw last night, but, um, of the hurdles. And so I, he didn't teach me how to run them. No one told me, no one, we had nobody in our team running it. So I just felt, why not just blow it out? Just like, Cause I had I had no strategy. I had no background, no context. And I remember when I got into, into my stance, I took off, I blew everyone around that turn. And as soon as I got to that straightaway, my legs got really heavy. I'm all, Oh shit. And I got to the next one and I hit it. And another person passes me and then I'm running. I hit the other one. I stumbled. And then I hit the other next one and I fell and tumbled and I got up and I hit the next one. And then the last one, I just kind of, I just put my one foot over the next and I came second and last place. And not only was it embarrassing because my brother was a senior and all of his baseball buddies were sitting there watching me. 
and I had cuts all over my, my, my legs, but there was that moment. And I talk about this a lot when we're out of breath and we're locked up, our faculties are all, and you talked about that moment, like when you have two more laps left and you've ran out of gas. Um, when you think about all those moments, you went through those, like how, what's, what's the technique when you feel like you've actually, you burned your fuel too quick. Is there anything an athlete can do in the moment when shit's passing them, people are passing them and there's all, and then your ego gets involved and like, what is, is there a technique or is there something that an athlete can do in that moment? That's a big question, right? Like how do you push the limits? One thing I will say is we often feel that way, right? We often, not often, but it's like, we're all familiar with this feeling of like, I went and I just hit the wall. I couldn't go any farther. Now, most of the time in my opinion or my reading of the literature, that's kind of an illusion. Like we're, mm. we're, we're being held back, especially in the context of endurance sports. And in, in, when you're talking about, you know, doing a marathon or a half marathon, let's say, and you feel like I just can't go. It's a lot of that is your mind is trying to protect you from further damage and just tr trying to make it's, it's making things feel harder. So you'll slow down and stop doing damage. Okay. So in that case, there are, there are mental approaches that can help you get through that. But I, I do think it's also important to acknowledge that sometimes you really do hit the wall, you know, you blow out your, your energy stores. And that's actually more common in one to two minute events like that or one to when you run the hundred meters, nobody, nobody hits the wall in the hundred meters, right? Like right. it's that, that's no problem. But these slightly longer events where, because you, you've got basically three energy systems, one that lasts maybe like 10 seconds, the sort of phosphocreatin system is, it's just the energy that's in your muscle cells already. Right. Then you, you've got your anaerobic energy system, and then you've got your aerobic energy system, which can last for, for hours and hours. But it's that anaerobic energy system, which is dominant for like one to five minutes, uh, events lasting one to five minutes. If you sprint like in the, and, and you're also trying to hurdle, like you can hit that point where you really have run out of energy, at least energy that can, that can allow you to keep sprinting at that speed. And so for your 220 meter hurdles, like not to be too defeatist, there probably wasn't a lot you could do except right. chalk it up as a learning experience. And like, you can't go that fast. You're not fit enough to go that fast for, right. you have to save some energy. And that's a process that we, you know, that the, the whole concept of pacing is learning to manage your energy stores, but not, but, but unfortunately not doing what most of us do, which is after some experiences, like you, you went through with two hurdles two twenty okay. hurdles is learning too conservatively. So then being scared, never wanting to experience them that experience that again. And so going out really slowly after that. And that's a little bit what happened to me after that, that race I described where I, I, I really blew up and ended up fourth. And I, as I told you, my, most of my career, I, I was too conservative. And that's pro those, those two things are probably linked that it's like, that was a really negative experience. And so I'm going to try and make sure I save something to finish strong. So anyway, that's a long answer and it's not a, not a satisfying one, but no, um, it was great. Yeah. If you, if you hit the wall, like some, you know, some, sometimes there isn't, sometimes there's no magic solution, but you shouldn't necessarily just trust the first feeling that, that you can't go on. You know, you should, you should try and reframe and, you know, get, get away. Stop. Don't, don't think about this sucks and how bad this is. Think about being relaxed and, and, and the goal and, and getting back to process and doing what you know you can do as opposed to focusing on this really hurts and I can't keep going. For sure. You know, and it's, um, it's funny. Cause as you were talking, like I went back to in my mind, what my, what my coach told me when I was done, you know, sulking in my, you know, in, in my embarrassment, he's like, well, looks like you just started too fast. 
(laughs) (laughs) Sometimes there's deep wisdom in, in in simple words, right? Like exactly. There's a lesson there and it's, it's, it's a good one. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's not, not, sometimes the, the lessons are most well-learned when they're learned from a direct experience. You know, he could have told you a thousand times, but you didn't need him to tell you. Exactly. (laughs) Well, you know, when we talk about that moment of when you're out of gas, um, and I know that there's a lot of times when we want to push through something, um, whether if we're like, we're out of breath, but things are very uncomfortable, whether in life or in sport, for me, a lot of the things that I teach about um, strategies is is self-talk. So talking yourself through that situation. Um, And I know that like when we talk about pain, especially in running, long distance running, I mean, after a while on that 20th or 21st mile in a marathon, I mean, there's, I can only imagine the the pain. There's a lot of pain probably before that as well. But I've always heard from people that, you know, when it comes to pain, uh, it's just another experience. And, And so I'm all, that sounds cool. Like, yeah, it's just another experience. But when you're feeling that pain and you're trying to tell yourself that it's another experience and just keep on moving or you're out of breath, you, you know, you burned all your gas. Do, do you use that strategy to talk yourself through that, that pain or what are some of the things that you do or some of the things that you've researched that are effective? Yeah. I mean, I think you're, you're, you're right on that. Self-talk is, is super important. And one of the reasons for that is ultimately, at least for endurance sports. And I think in a lot of contexts, what, the, what really matters is your perception of the situation. Like how hard does it feel like you're working? Um, because that's, what's going to determine whether you keep going. It's, and, and this is, I think the, the, the real crux of, of the understanding endurance is that for the most part, it's not when you, if you, if you go to the Olympic marathon or you know, whoever wins the Olympic marathon and you measure, you put them in a lab two seconds after they cross the finish line, you're going to find, they still have energy. They still have like, you know, glycogen carbohydrate stores in their leg muscles. They, their heart is still beating. They didn't go there that speed because they, or they, their speed wasn't limited by their body. Their speed was limited by that's as, as, as hard as their mind would let them go. And now the perception of how hard your, your, your mental perception of how hard it is, it, of course, it depends on all the physiological things that how, how, what's your core temperature, how much energy does your muscles have all these sorts of things. Um, but ultimately you don't stop because you're out of literally out of fuel. You stop because you're getting low on gas and it's making it feel hard. And so where self-talk comes in is that it's, it's another input to your brain's assessment of how hard you're working. So if you're out there, you're out of breath you're starting to run low on energy and you're telling yourself, this sucks. I don't know why I let my friend convince me to sign up for this half marathon. I'm not cut out for this. This is not, you know, I'm better at ping pong. Then in your sort of brain's subconscious supercomputer deciding how hard are we pushing right now? Are we at eight out of 10 or seven and a half out of 10 or nine out of 10? The fact that you're telling yourself that it's miserable is likely to make you assess that you're pushing harder than you really are. And so you're more likely to slow down a little bit earlier. Whereas if you're telling yourself, yeah, this is uncomfortable. This is what it felt like in training too. This is what it's supposed to feel like. It doesn't feel good, but I'm going to be able to stop in another two miles. And when I stop, I'm going to be really proud of myself if I push through this and not just slow down to a jog. And, and you know what, this is what look around the people around me. They're all suffering too. I'm, I'm doing, this is exactly what it's supposed to feel like. Then instead of saying this is nine out of 10, you might say, yeah, no, this is more like eight out of 10. I can keep going. So it's not that the, the, the distress and the pain aren't real. And it's not that you can just decide to keep going forever because those, those physiological inputs are absolutely real, but at the margins, your assessment of like, am I at my limit or am I just below my limit? 
it's going to be influenced. And there's there's some really good, really interesting studies that that demonstrate this by how you're how you're responding to the situation and what you're telling yourself and what you've practiced in advance should be your self-talk and your response at, the, at this moment in the game or in the competition. Yeah. And you, you talk about the physiologically, the physiological um, elements like, you know, body temperature and uh, oxygen intake. You talk about this stuff in your book. When you, did you know about those, those factors or those elements when you were running or was this like, did you learn how important they were not only to mindset and recovery, but also to in, to have more endurance? Like, did you learn that after the fact when you were writing this book? I, I would say I learned a lot more after I was done my running career than I knew during my running career. But during mm-hmm. my running career, I was very interested in the, the sort of physiology, physiology of running. And I, I would say my mistake was that I, I sort of thought that was all there was. And so I was really interested in understanding VO2 max and lactate threshold and, and body temperature and oxygen intake and all these sorts of things. And my, my hope was that by understanding all these things, I'd learn how to train, uh, you know, in order to increase my VO2 max, my lactate threshold and all these sorts of things. And I would run faster. And, and that's, of course, you know, that's, that's not a bad thing to do, but I was miss, I was leaving out the, the, the other 50% or, you know, or 90% as the case may be, um, right. uh, d- d- depending on how you want to do the math. But I was, I was thinking of my body as uh, in the same way I would think of as a car that you've got to fuel it right. And you've got to maintain it. And that, and then when waste time comes, you, you step on the gas and, and the car goes as fast as it'll go not understanding that or not sort of fully realizing that my mindset would determine how much of that physical capacity I could, I could take advantage of. And so, you know, as a, as an athlete, I struggled a lot with, with, you know, pre-race nerves and things like that. And, and I just sort of thought, well, it sucks. I, I really hate being nervous and that's the way it goes. And, and in hindsight, I, I should have been working with a, a sports psychologist or someone like that. And trying to address these things and trying to make sure that I was in the right headspace before races and trying to address my fears and my anxieties because, um, yeah, they definitely, they definitely held me back sometimes. And, and, and my mindset of, or my approach of just wanting to learn about the the pistons and the cranks and the fuel tanks and stuff was, mm-hmm. was leaving out some, some pretty important aspects of performance. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you too. And, you know, obviously this is my profession as a mental performance coach, but my, I, I believe that my career probably would look a lot different if I worked with somebody, if I had a sports psychologist or a mental performance coach. Um, just to deal with a lot of my, you know, my, you know, pre-performance nerves and, and just kind of, I think more of my identity, like I was telling you earlier about, I was so, I was so hung up on if people liked me. Um, and that affected how I viewed myself, um, and how I valued myself. But when you, when you start, like for you, when you start talking about like, we'll, we'll dive a little bit into your book endure. Um, when did you start having this intrigue of just human performance, pushing the limits, like what got you so intrigued to, to learn more about it and then write a book about it? Yeah, it was a super long journey <laughs> to be honest. So, I mean, the, the, the capsule version is, so I, I was a, a serious distance runner. I was a national team athlete here in Canada. And then I had also been in parallel with that studying, uh, as, uh, in, in physics. So I had a science background and then I made, once I finished my running career in my late twenties, I made a big career switch to journalism. So I was looking for a niche to help myself in as a journalist. And I was like, well, I know a lot about running and about sports and I know a lot about science. Now the science I studied was not physiology, but I started, I figured, well, I'll use those two things. I could write about the science of sport. And so initially it was what I was just saying before. I was like, well, I can write about VO2 max and heart rate thresholds and 
you know, the heart rate zones and all these sorts of things. And I can, I'm not afraid of looking at graphs and, and stuff like that. So I was, okay. I was writing about the physical side of sports science. And it was in doing that, that I stumbled across some, some, I think the first one that really caught my attention was a debate in about 2006, 2007 in a journal about whether dehydration harms performance. It was like a pro and con does dehydration make you hurt athletic performance. And it's like, what are you, what are you talking about? Like, how could there be a debate about this? It's like, does gravity point down or up? Like it, it seems so obvious to me. And then I read this, uh, it was by a guy named Tim Noakes, a South African scientist, the arguing that we hadn't really understood dehydration properly and, and understood the difference between dehydration, which is your body not having enough fluid and thirst, which is your perception that you would like to have a drink. And, and right. he was arguing essentially that thirst is more important than dehydration. And that, that fascinated me so much that I read some more of his work, uh, of Tim Noakes's work, which then led me into this at the time. Well, it was a debate that was going on at the time and is essentially still going on about that. Hey, maybe, maybe when we talk about physical limits, what we're really talking about is the brain deciding that you shouldn't get any closer to your physical limits. And so that was new to me. So the, like uh, initially the, like writing about VO2 max, it's just like, well, this is more writing about the stuff that I was interested in when I was a runner. And it was like, oh, the brain's role. I was totally missing all this when I was a runner. And so that made me more interested in, uh, in digging into it. And it became a, a, a long journey because it turned out not only was there a lot of interesting science, but it was an ongoing area of science. And I, I would say that's still the case. Scientists do not agree on what defines your physical limits. And that's why it's so much fun to follow this area of research. Wow. You know, it's when you're talking about dehydration, I remember when I was um, in my master's program, um, we were learning just about the effects of CTE um, in the sport of wrestling. You know, at the time, they were just starting to kind of learn a little bit about, because, you know, a lot of those athletes, they dehydrate themselves. They're losing a lot of water, make weight. And then when they have a concussion or a concussed or, you know, a head injury, the brain is actually acting differently. Oh, wow. um, because they're, they're dehydrated versus maybe a hydrated athlete that gets, you know, concussed. So it just fascinated me, like how the body, you put it through different um, experiences and elements, how it's going to react, especially with dehydration. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, you know, speaking of controversies, that's another area where people are still trying to, to understand, like, what are the effects on the body? Cause they're real. And what are the effects on how we feel and perception? And, you know, one of the early studies that caught my attention is showing that if you're doing an endurance event and you take some sports drink in your mouth and then spit it out, it'll still enhance your performance. So even without swallowing. So that, again, getting to this idea that your brain, you can trick your brain into thinking you, that you're rehydrating and sending some energy, uh, in, in, you know, to your muscles and then spit it out. And, but you, you'll go faster because you've tricked your brain into believing that that's going to happen. Wow. That's the mind's a crazy thing. So is the brain. Uh, but when you, when you think about mental skills, um, and I know this is a loaded question, especially when we're talking about endurance training or endurance sports, uh, do you feel from your perspective, is there, is there that one really important mental skill or is there a few of them that you have to marry for you to run 20 plus miles or bike a hundred miles? Like from your perspective, like, What's that one or two or three mental skills that you think are really important? Yeah. I mean, I, th I think you know, th there's a guy in, in Northern Ireland, a sports psychologist who studies what endurance athletes think about a guy named Noel Brick. 
And I, I think his work's really interesting. And, and one of the things he always says is it's not about one thing. Like it used to be that in the seventies, the sort of picture of endurance athletes was you're either associating or dissociating. Like you're either focusing on the task or you're thinking about, you know, that time in grade five, when you, you know, snuck away and did something cool where like you're, you're just daydreaming. Um, and elite athletes associate, they're thinking about their stride and, and recreational athletes dissociate their daydream. And that's, that, that was sort of dominant the dominant view for a couple of decades, but these days it's, it's moved away. And so Noel Brick's sort of mantra or point is that you need to have a, a, a sort of pocket full of mental strategies to deal with at, at different points in the race. There are times when you need to be really focused and really dialed in. There are times when distraction is literally the most powerful mental strategy you can have the ability to be in the middle of an uncomfortable, miserable situation. You've been running for 20 miles uh, it's pouring rain, whatever. And you're mentally, you're just somewhere else. You're just, you're in autopilot and you're doing that. You can't spend the whole time in autopilot because otherwise you'll slow down or you'll trip or, you know, right. you'll, your knee will hurt. So distraction is actually a pretty powerful one. This sort of element of mindfulness, the idea of non-judgmental self-awareness, I think is really powerful too. The, the ability to feel, to, to be conscious of what's going on in your body and in your mind without overreacting to it. I think that's, that's proven in a variety of contexts, like in Navy SEALs, in elite adventure racers, in Olympic athletes. If, if you can not, if you, if you can just be conscious of what's going on, your self-monitoring is good, but, but non-judgmentally, that's a, that's a, a real superpower for, for endurance athletes. Cause you have to be monitoring what's going on you, to, to judge your effort. You have to know how your body's feeling, but if you're constantly asking yourself, how do I feel? And the answer is horrible. You're not going to, you're not going to last 25, 26 miles. So you need to be able right. to, to, to check that, you know, check your oil without freaking out. And then, you know, there's, there's, there's other skills that are useful, like visualization and preparation. And, and of course, you know, self-talk controlling your internal dialogue or more, more generally what Noel Brick would call metacognition, the, the ability to sort of think about what you're thinking and, and guide it and control it, as opposed to just be at the whim of whatever thought blows through your head at any given moment. So, sorry, that's a, a friendly answer, but I guess that the, the point of the answer is that there isn't just one tactic that's going to get you through every, every moment of a long endurance challenge. You're going to have to have different uh, arrows in your quiver to deal with the different challenges that are going to come up at different points in, in the event. Got it. Well, and I, and I love that you brought association and dissociation because I know as, as a, when I was in my younger, in my life, we were doing long runs. Um, the only way that I could actually make that long run is if I could kind of just think about some other stuff while I know that I'm trusting my body doing this thing and I can come back and like put it on, but I, I had to balance it a little bit. No one taught me that. I just kind of felt that's the way I should do it if I'm going to get through this. And so I've heard that about runners too, is like runners will, they'll get into their cadence, they'll get into their stride, they'll get into their form, their breathing and everything. And then they'll pop out of that. Not necessarily, I mean, you can call it a distraction, but they just kind of, they go off and they start looking at like the hills, start looking at the landscape a little bit and they start like appreciating shit. And then they come back into their stride, into their breath, into their cadence. So what's the balance there? Or is like, what's, is there like a percentage? Well, it depends on the, you know, for, for, for running, you know, let's say you're training, depending on what level you're at, but let, for an yeah. runner, you might be running 14 times a week and wow. you know, 10 of those runs are just easy pace, conversational pace. And four of them are harder than anything you could imagine. So there's different, and, and there's different gradations within that. But so 
for your easy runs, absolutely. You want to be thinking of, of nothing. You just want to be enjoying yourself and passing the time for the hard runs. Sometimes you want to be thinking about nothing but the challenge and how fast are you going? Is it the right pace? How are you feeling? One of the greatest distractions for me is the conversation of other people. So, and, and for the hardest runs, I like having company because it keeps me accountable. Like if I'm running with someone who's well-matched with me and if I start to drift, uh, you know, my, my effort starts to drift off, they'll start pulling ahead of me and that'll run. Oh no, 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 I need to buckle down and stay with that person. But for easy runs, if I'm out going out for an hour, <laughs> like that hour is far more pleasant if I'm chatting with a, with a friend and, you know, an example, right. when I went to university, I went to university in Montreal. And, and we had various routes to, uh, on the team that we, where we would train on a regular basis. And there was one route around Mount Royal, around the mountain in, in Montreal that, you know, we ran, I don't know, maybe once a week for four years. And at one point in fourth year, I had to miss practice because I can't remember I had an exam or something like that. So I did the run by myself and I realized I didn't know the route. I was like, oh, do I turn left here? Oh, hang on. This traffic light looks kind of familiar. I'd been running the route for four years on a regular basis. I didn't know it because... For me, I was an autopilot. I went with my friends. I was chatting with my friends. I, I wasn't a pace pusher. I tended to sit in the pack. So I'd never bothered to figure out where we were going. That's that's how tuned out I was. And that's actually not, that's like not an isolated story for me. There are lots of routes where I'm like, oh man, if, if I'm used to running with other people, I'm just totally happy to tune out and not worry about it. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's funny how our intentions are, right? And it all comes down to our our intentions. Um, and I want, I want people to check out your book because there's so many good things, so many good nuggets, science to it. But when you think about, because I know what it's like to be an author and, you know, all the things that goes into writing a book. But when you look at all the content and the things that you've covered, what's the proudest thing that you kind of shared or the most meaningful thing about your book that just kind of, that kind of every time that you even like hear about it, talk about it, read about it, your frequency kind of is raised a little bit because it's just that there's that thing in your book that you're really proud about. That's an interesting question. Uh, um... <laughs> Part of me is like, I love every word in my book. They're all great. <laughs> um, you know, like in, in one sense, uh, I, I really tackled some, some heavy science early on and, and I'm actually pretty kind of, I worked very hard to try and make that science accessible to, to people and to, to explain it clearly without bogging it down. So from a technical sense of having tried to, you know, be being a writer and being an explainer, uh, the, the first maybe two or three chapters I'm really proud of, but the, my favorite part of the book, like when you're saying, you know, my, my frequency changes a little bit when I think about it, it's the, the, yeah, the very last chapter, the 13th chapter, which is where I try and kind of pull everything together. Like, what is this? I, my bias is towards, I'm a sort of empirical guy. Like, what can you measure? What can you, what can we demonstrate in the lab with a randomized trial? But the last chapter is about belief. What does it mean to believe you can do something or to not believe you can do something? And how does that affect the way you approach that event and the way you approach the challenge and how likely you are to succeed? And, and that ended up being much less like there's 12 chapters of like scientific studies and, and things like that. And then the last chapter, there's a little science in there, but it's really much more a sort of exploration of a, a reevaluation of some of the things we were talking about earlier. What does it mean to have the confidence two thirds of the way through a race when there's still a long way away to put yourself out there to, to take a risk. And so that's the, yeah, sorry. I mean, I guess I don't want to recite the whole chapter, but I guess that chapter on belief is, is where I try and move away from just like, what does the lab study? What do the lab studies tell us and get to like, okay, what, how do we enact this? How do we, how does this change what we do in sports or in life? Um, that last chapter on belief is what I'm really proud of and, and what sort of, 
I reflect, I still reflect on when I'm thinking about career goals and things like that. Well, you know, what is it that I want and do I believe I can do it? And is it worth taking the risk? Am I going to, am I putting myself in a position to succeed and all those sorts of things? Beautiful. It's uh, whether it is writing a book, it's a project, whatever it is, when you can bring it back home and you as the creator feel really good about all the work and it makes sense. And, and like you can, it's, it's like this, that crossing the finish line. It's how it was for me when I wrote my book is that, you know, there are a lot of content, a lot of stuff. And then I felt like at the end, when you tie it in, it just feels good because you know, like to you, it makes sense. So, I mean, it should, right? Yeah. It's, it's kind of like, you feel like you're a, a juggler at the circus and you've got 17 balls in the air and then the, the book is going on. And then you get to the, towards the last chapter. It's like, okay, now can I catch all these balls without, or am I going to finish with just a bunch of balls all over the ground and make a big mess? And so with that last chapter, I felt like I caught most of the balls and, and it, 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 the, it all came together again yeah. from the, from the mid, mid chaos. That's awesome. That's a great analogy. So there's so much more about your background and, and your writings and your book that, I mean, we could talk about a whole nother podcast about belief. Um, Cause I think that's, that's huge for athletes as well, but I'm a big proponent, um, a big believer in reflection and spending time and reflecting weekly work, monthly work, it's how we learn, it's how we get better, it's how we gain more wisdom. So when you think about your whole career, so even in running, writing, researching, what do you think you've learned the most about yourself? In running, one of the things I learned at my old running club when I'm talking to younger runners, it's kind of like the baseball cliche of like, you you, you miss every pitch that you don't swing at or whatever. You can't, you know, like... Right. Uh, what I did in running is, is I was always there, always putting myself in, in contention and putting myself in a position for something great to, to happen. I was willing to, I set high goals. I showed up, you know, like I was four years at university. I didn't miss a practice, uh, at, you know, a daily practice. And in races, I was always there and I didn't always win. And I often, I like to, uh, I'm very proud of the fact that I made some national teams here in Canada. I was always the last guy onto the team, the guy who just barely made standard or the guy who missed the team, but then someone got hurt and they're like, Alex, we need a sixth man for this world cross country championships. Can you show up? Yeah, I can show up. I'm always ready. And I think that's kind of the approach that I took with me to then my, my journalism or writing career, because it's, it's a, you know, freelance journalism is a competitive and difficult world. These days, the, the industry is in turmoil. Publications are closing. It's a challenging industry, but I, w- I got out there and I was willing to send out pitches, uh, to magazines and off, you know, newspapers. And often they just get ignored. Like it's, it's a hard business. I, I was always willing to put myself out there so that if it happened that someone was looking for a pitch of the type that I was offering, then, Hey, all of a sudden I got my first piece in the New York times or something like that. And so I, I you know, it's easy to self mythologize in, in, in running. There's a sort of cliche that there's two, only two types of people, those who over report their training and those who, and those who under report their training. So the people who say, I work so hard, I work harder than anybody. I train a million miles a week. That's why I'm going to be successful. And the people who say, Oh, I, I don't train at all. I'm just, you know, Oh, this old thing running. I, you know, I, I guess I'm just really talented. Um, so everyone has their own self mythology and I don't want right. to, so I don't want to sort of fall into the trap of creating my own self mythology, but I feel like I, I've been a very good shower upper 
and just being there every day, ready to, 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 uh, to do something and, and to think long-term. And so I think that's not really one clear lesson, but like to set myself up for like, if I do this and if, if I, if I write this piece, which is not maybe the piece that I want to write, that's going to be, now I have a contact with that editor and a year from now, when I want to write a different piece, she'll know who I am and I'll have delivered every, every piece that I'm writing, I'll have delivered on time, you know, to the right, right. length and all these sorts of things. So, uh, that, that kind of sense too, of showing up, doing what you're expected to do, always meeting, doing what you promised you would do. Anyway, so I'm, I'm rambling, that's 10, 10 different lessons, but I, I feel like that's the commonality or the, the link that runs through running and, and journalism. Well, it's, and thanks for sharing, but I, I'm also like thinking as, as you're writing, you're performing, right? So it, is it different than running? Yeah, but you're still performing and you also have to have people judge your work. People are going to, sh- you know, so is there, when you're writing and cause you've, and I want you to promote what you're writing um, in magazines. Cause the, I think what makes you different is that you tackle really interesting uh, topics and you make really cool titles to your, to your articles. Uh, like I think your one recent one in uh, the end of July was how do you take a, a bathroom break during the middle of a race? <laughs> right. And yeah. it, that could, screw up, that could screw up somebody's mindset, right. When they, when they feel like they got a lead or, or they don't have enough lead and they have to go, they have to stop to go to the bathroom. So anywho, but there's so many other things that you do. But when you're when you're like getting into the New York Times and you're writing this book and you're doing all these things, you have to compete with all these other people and you also have to deal with people's perspectives and perceptions. So are you dealing with fear too when you're when you're writing and performing? Yeah, absolutely. You're 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 absolutely right. And it's to be honest, it's like it's something I wrestle with and I think a lot of other journalists do too. It's like uh at a certain point, it's just like running where you're like, uh, if, if I just run that time, I'll be happy. If I just make, win that medal, I'll be happy. If I just make that national team, I'll be happy. And, you know, I'd like to change my answer to the previous question, because that's actually, now that I think about it, that is the most important lesson I've learned. And the lesson that I learned from running that I've applied to other lessons of life or other parts of life, which was, you always think the next, the next goal is going to be, yeah, well, I'm going to be a really cool person when I do that and I'll be happy and I won't, all the holes in my, in my psyche will be filled and I'll be like, yeah, I'm a sub four minute miler. I never have to worry about it. And then you do it and you're like, I think I could be a 358 miler. And you know, that felt easy. I bet I could, and if I run 356, maybe I'll qualify for the Olympics, you know, whatever there's, right. you realize that there's always another ladder, almost nobody in the world, you know, one out of 7 billion gets to truly gets to the top of the ladder. And even when they do, they're like, well, if I can do a little better then I'll be a, a legend, I'll be immortal. I'll, you know, I'll be across <laughs> generations. And so with, with journalism, there's very much like it's, it's, it's one of the careers and there are one. Yeah. I mean, I won't get into the sociology too much, but some careers are, are, have this sort of pantheon of like, you're always trying to be the best or better. It's competitive. It's, it's maybe less the case in other careers. I don't want to, I, I don't mean this as a judgment. If, yeah. if you're an accountant, your job is to be a good accountant. You don't really care if you're better than some accountant on the other side of the country. Like uh, maybe you do, I don't know, but that's, it's my perception that right. your, your world is self-contained. You're like, how, am I doing my job? Journalism, you're comparing yourself to others. You're, you're imagining what, what it would be like to publish in this magazine or that magazine, or if I, what if I was a bestseller? What if this, you know, what if I won that award? Mm. 
And, you know, I'm 45 now and it's like, I'm not like a young Turk or anything anymore. It's, it's now like, okay, I'm mid-career. How much do I want to be the hungry ghost or whatever and always be wanting more versus to be like, hey, I've, I'm pretty happy with what I've accomplished and I want to go kayaking tomorrow morning instead of sweating, a, you know. And I don't want to be lazy either. So right. it's, it's, it's a real, like, you, you have to think very carefully rather you talked about intention before. And I think you have to think, you have, you have to pause periodically. And you talked about reflection too. You have to reflect, what is it I'm after? And, you know, there's, there's no right answer, no wrong answer, but there's costs to everything. Um, and you can't, you can't have everything. You have to choose how do I want to spend my time and how much of it do I want to spend towards the next prize versus how much do I want to spend to with my kids or, you know, relaxing. And and I I wrestle with this stuff a lot. Well, it's, and as you're talking, I guess we're at the end of a podcast here, we're kind of getting into the mindset of a journalist, because when you think about being a journalist, it's kind of an individual sport, right? You, you win by yourself and you lose by yourself. And so it's not like a team sport. You're like, you're not working with a bunch of writers. So you win together and you lose together. There's a support system there. Whereas when you're by yourself and you're going against a big time people to get, you know, your article featured or a book published, whatever it is. Um, I think people don't, I, maybe that's my perspective. People don't understand, like it could be lonely when. And, and that's one of the great losses of like, it used to be a team, like there, when newspapers and, and magazines were much better yeah. funded, there were far more people working within a team context where there really was a sense of like, yeah, we're, there could be six people who are writing a given article and, and, or, or more or whatever. And right. you were backing each other up and, and, and you were proud of what the team accomplished if the newspaper was providing the best coverage of this particular event. Um, there's been much more atomization now, more, more, far more journalists are freelancers like me. So we have no permit. Like I work with outside magazine and I'm happy to work with them, but I'm a freelancer. I'm a contractor. I'm not on staff there. Uh, and even for people who are on staff, you know, this is the social media media era. Even people who are, who, if they're a staff writer for the New York Times, but they have their Twitter profile, and everyone knows how many this person has this many followers, and this person has that many followers. Yeah. And so it's become much more, as you say, of an of an individual sport, which is fun and liberating in some ways. Like I, I like not having anyone tell me what to do or what stories I need to cover. But it is more lonely, and it is you know, and it can become all consuming if if you're not careful. If if your goal is always to go viral on every story or every tweet, I don't think that's healthy, or at least you can do it for a while. And I was certainly hungry when I was started as a journalist, I had to be hungry and I was hungry and I worked hard and I, I chased goals, but it's like, I don't know if I want to stay that hungry my whole life because you know, you, right. sometimes some, at some point you want to enjoy it. You want to say, Hey, I'm, totally. I, I like what I'm doing. And I'm not, I, I'm not going to work 18 hours to try and get to the next step or the next level or the next prize. Yeah, uh, I'm with you. Uh, and I think as we get older in our in our in our lives and into our purpose, we just haven't a, we we maneuver with it. We have a different perspective, and I think that that's part of our wisdom. Um, but and also balance. I know I could speak I could speak truthfully on this. Being seven, you know, spending 17 years in corporate America and sales, I spent maybe 10 of those 17 years being a hundred percent hunter where I was hunting stuff and I was going, sometimes I was just going too fast. I was just so worried about spitting out activity. I didn't care about the quality of it. I would just go, 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 go. And then I got to a point where I'm like, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. And then I became what they call as a farmer. So just sit in the count and then farm it, like, you know, grow it from the inside out, but spend a lot of time in one spot or two spots. And I felt that was the place that towards the end of my career, 
in corporate America or in sales, at least, um, that's where I felt the best. Maybe I felt more peace. I felt more authentic and, and the relationships that I had were more meaningful. And I wasn't just all over the place, just trying to get my name out. Yeah. 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 But it's interesting. Would you, have, you have been happy as a farmer at 24, as much as I'm like, I want to be all Zen now and, and enjoy life. I'm also happy. I, I, I look back with great fondness at being all in on running and, and on journalism too. And there'll be things that I, I don't just go out to pasture now. Um, you know, I, I definitely want to keep pushing, but just not all the time. I want to find a, a different balance uh, right. at a different time in my life. For sure. For sure. Well, for my listeners, how can they buy your book, Endure, and then also read all your incredible articles? Where can they find you on social media and all that fun stuff? Uh, yeah, thanks for asking. Um, the, probably the easiest place to find me is on Twitter. My handle is sweat science, all one word. Um, and uh, any article, I always tweet whatever articles I've, I've written uh, in, in tr- true self-promotional fashion. And, um, yeah, most of my, most of my writing these days is with outside magazine. So you can find me there, but yeah, you, if, if you go to Twitter, that's fine. In terms of the book, the book's called Endure. Um, it is available pretty much anywhere, including at your, your local independent bookstore. You can, and if the, if they don't have it in stock, they'll happily order it for you, but it's also available on Amazon for which I'm also grateful. So, uh, Endure Alex Hutchinson, um, you'll, you'll find it pretty much anywhere you buy books. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Alex, man, this is, again, I, I could have another hour or two to, kind of go into other places and other, you know, just in discovery and other, other places. But, um, I wanted to thank you for your time and your energy and just sharing your, your thoughts on all these topics. And, um, and I can't wait to read more of your articles and hopefully your next book. Thanks so much, man. It's, uh, it was definitely a, an interesting conversation that pushed me to reflect in some, some different ways. And, uh, yeah, I, I also hope I'll have another book someday, but who knows? <laughs> and, and you too, I hope you're, you're writing as well. Working on it, working on it. Awesome. Thanks, Alex. Okay. Thanks, Grant.